So last week we started a, a sermon series on prophecies um, relating to Easter and to Jesus, uh, looking forward to the Messiah and what he would do uh, and who he would be. And often uh, this is the kind of thing we do uh, around Christmas, you know, the coming of a Messiah, the birth of a Messiah. But there's a lot of uh, prophecies and foreshadowing around the sacrifice of Jesus. And that's kind of what we're trying to focus on, is um, what he was going to accomplish. Um, and my hope is that as we approach the Easter season, this will um, allow us to kind of both meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus, but also to give us a bigger picture of God moving and working through history. Uh, it'll allow us to see the, the larger context, the big picture of the story um, throughout the Bible. So last week we were in Genesis 3, uh, we saw that from the moment that the curses were given, uh, as a result of our sin, God had a plan, uh, a plan to send Jesus to defeat Satan's power once and for all, and to redeem us to himself. And we saw from that moment uh, in time that the world would be at war with satanic forces. And then we also saw from that moment that God declared that even though we would be at war, he would have the ultimate victory over Satan and over sin. And then we also saw that when he declared that victory, he laid out the parameters by which he would defeat Satan, how he would do it, through the shedding of blood. And then we saw that this ultimate victory, uh, this crushing of Satan through this shedding of blood, would be accomplished through a descendant of Adam and Eve. So last week I spoke briefly about the, the context and imagery around the shedding of blood and the symbolism uh, and the connection in Judaism between blood and life uh, and the system of sacrificing an animal to pay for sin because the payment for sin is death. So I, I talked about that a little bit last week. We're going to study that a lot more this week. Uh, we're going to be looking at a prophecy uh, that connects Jesus and his death intricately to the sacrificial system. So this is actually kind of a unique prophecy because it's only identified as a prophecy in the moment that it's fulfilled. Uh, so a lot of the prophecies we're actually going to be looking at are, they're not necessarily like someone wrote down like this, you know, this will be fulfilled at this moment and this is exactly what will happen. Um, but there's a lot of um, prophecies we'll be looking at that are foreshadowing of things to come. A lot of times in the Old Testament, uh, God would foreshadow through actions or things that people would do, or for some reason he would um, oftentimes uh, enable a situation where something that would happen in the future would play out. Um, so if you remember um, which prophet it was, it was one of the minor prophets who had to marry a prostitute, and that was to reflect Israel's connection um, with God. Hosea, thank you. Yeah, by, like I said. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so Hosea, and it was acting out Israel's relationship with God, uh, and that story was prophetic in nature. So this is going to be similar, uh, and a lot of the stories we're going to be looking at in the next few weeks will be similar as well. Um, so this one, this prophecy, uh, we, we'll look at the fulfillment first. So the fulfillment is John chapter 19. This is right after Jesus has died on the cross. And it starts in verse 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. 
it doesn't say there, it just says special Sabbaths, but this was the Passover in, Jewish, uh, in the Jewish calendar. So because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left hanging on the cross both during the Sabbath and Passover, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then the, ones, uh, the legs of the other man who had been crucified with Jesus. But then when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, which brought a sudden flow of blood and water. Then John here, the author, says, The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. So when he's talking in third person here, he says he knows that he told the truth. Um, he's talking about himself. John is talking about himself. Because he is one of the only apostles who was actually present at the execution of Jesus on the cross. Uh, and we know that because in John, Jesus is asking John to come up and tells him to take care of his mother Mary. So the prophecy here is that not one of his bones will be broken. And that's cool. I guess the, the prophecy is meant to prove that he's the Messiah, like most of them. And yes, but also no. Um, it's actually a much more significant and deeper meaning than that. Um, because we had a lot of prophecies that pointed to Jesus as the Messiah, but this is actually um, doing something even deeper uh, in, in terms of uh, connection. So this is the moment in which this prophecy is fulfilled. But where is the prophecy itself in Scripture? And that's where we're going to have to start to look back. And I'll warn you, there's going to be a ton of that contextual information and biblical imagery today. Um, so this prophecy comes from Exodus. Uh, Exodus chapter 12, verses 43 to 50. And I'm only going to read verses 43 to 46. That gives us the piece of information that we need. But I want to give you the whole reference in case you want to read it uh, on your own. Uh, so the heading in this section, if you're in the NIV, um, I'm not sure what it is in the other translations, but most of them are probably similar. Uh, the section heading is Passover Restrictions. So it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, These are the regulations for the Passover meal. No foreigner may eat it. Any slave you have bought may eat it after you've circumcised him, but a temporary resident or a hired worker may not eat it. It must be eaten inside the house, Take none of the meat outside of the house. Do not break any of the bones. So that's where the prophecy comes from. That's what John says is being fulfilled, is this verse that says, do not break any of the bones. So what do we do with that? Um, it, it seems kind of weird at face value. You know, this scripture that's been fulfilled is about Passover meal. Um, so let's study this and see what there is here to learn. Uh, and like I said, there's going to be a lot of context. So let's start with Passover and kind of brush up our history on the Passover um, meal. So it originated from when the Israelites were living in slavery in Egypt. Uh, God sent Moses and Aaron to convince the Pharaoh to let the Israelites leave and be free. But God hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them leave Egypt. So God sent ten plagues to punish Pharaoh and to convince him that he was more powerful than all the Egyptian gods. And it was portrayed as a duel between Yahweh, God of the Israelites, and the Egyptian gods, although we know with the full context it wasn't really a fair fight, because their gods weren't real. Um, 
But that was kind of how it was portrayed. So first there were these 10 plagues. Uh, the first one was water uh, turning to blood in the, the streams, the canals, the rivers. Uh, the second was a plague of frogs. So frogs came out of water everywhere and went all over the place. They were in their beds. Uh, the third was a plague of gnats. The fourth was a plague of flies. The fifth, a plague causing all of the Egyptian livestock to die. Uh, the sixth was a plague of boils. The seventh was a plague of hail. The eighth was a plague of locusts. The ninth was a plague of darkness. And the tenth and final plague, which was the plague on the firstborn, uh, when all of the firstborn um, in Egypt would die, uh, except for the firstborn of any family that had the blood of a lamb painted on the top and side of the doorsteps. God passed over those houses. That's why it was called the Passover. So you can definitely see that God hardened Pharaoh's heart because all those plagues, I think after the first one, I would have been like, great, you can go now. Um, please stop. So this Passover meal, um, each Israelite was to take a lamb without any blemish or imperfection and to kill it on the evening of the Passover. They were to sprinkle the blood on the sides and the tops of the doors in their houses um, in which the lamb would be eaten. And then the lamb was to be roasted over a fire. It was not to be eaten raw, uh, and it was to be eaten with unleavened bread, just bread without yeast, um, flat bread. Uh, and it was to be spiced with bitter herbs. So this was the final meal that was eaten in preparation for the journey out of Egypt, while Yahweh was traveling through Egypt, killing all the firstborn children. So because of that, it was to be eaten quickly. Uh, you were supposed to have, quote, loins girded, shoes on the feet, and staff in hand. Um, everyone, essentially, in that day wore a dress type of clothing. There wasn't, like, pants that were fitted to the legs. So um, girding your loins just literally meant to pull it up, tie it up, so that you could leave or move quickly um, to walk or run. It was usually done before battle or travel. And then, finally, there were two more restrictions. Everything that was left over was to be burnt after this meal. You could only be eaten during that night. And the second thing, not a single bone of the Passover lamb was allowed to be broken. So the Passover lamb, or the Passover meal, uh, in the Exodus story, it did three things for the Israelites. Uh, the sacrifice of the lamb atoned for the sins of the people. The blood on the door frames purified those within. And the eating of the meat sanctified those who consumed it. And so by participating in this meal, the people were consecrating themselves as a nation holy to God. So when Yahweh came through to kill all the firstborn children, he did not enter those houses because they had been made holy. So how does that connect to Jesus and the fulfillment of this prophecy? We still, we got all this Passover stuff, and then we've got this thing about, you know, not a bone of Jesus will be broken from the Passover ritual. How does that all connect? And why is it so important that not a bone was broken? And this is where that biblical imagery really comes to play because symbolism was extremely important in their culture. Uh, and this is something that I've really started to understand more and more just the last couple years. If I'm writing a sermon, I have a dictionary of biblical imagery on my computer and I do not write a sermon without it because the imagery is so important in their culture. Uh, and, and you have to understand what the language, what they're saying and alluding to, um, because it's so important. So, 
First, let's look at John 1.29 to try and connect this with Jesus and understand what's going on here. So in John 1.29, uh, John the Baptist is baptizing people in the Jordan River. And Jesus comes along. And then it says in John 1.29, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of this world. And that's the first time in the Gospels that Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God. And John does it again the next day in this Gospel. So, lambs were associated with meekness and gentleness and innocence in Jewish culture. Uh, and John could have been referring to meekness and gentleness, and maybe he was doing a dual purpose thing here. Uh, but there's no way, no way in their culture that he could have called Jesus the Lamb of God without the crowd around him immediately making a direct connection to the sacrificial system. Lambs are specifically mentioned in connection with sacrifices more than 80 times in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. The most important um, significance of the lamb in Judaism, culturally, symbolically, sacrificially, was the role that it played in sacrifices to atone for sin. And by calling Jesus the Lamb of God, that was a very direct statement, and that would not have been lost on the listeners, especially Pharisees who would have been in the crowd listening. Because they kind of sent some people to observe and see what was happening. Just, just you know, nice and peaceful. Just, what's going on over here? Um, but not necessarily with good intention. So, this connection, um, calling Jesus the Lamb of God... This was in line with many other Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. A couple examples, uh, Jeremiah eleven nineteen, But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. And then Isaiah 53, verse 7, which we're probably going to look at later in this series. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. Um, and there's actually... I'm not going to hit, there's so many prophecies we could cover uh, that I'm not obviously going to hit all of them, but there's even a couple more prophecies in there that I could hit. Uh, but where it says he did not open his mouth uh, when he's standing before Pilate and Pilate asks him to defend himself and he doesn't give a defense, there's another prophecy about Jesus in that verse. So, throughout Israel's history, prophets often use the story of the Exodus to allude to and to illustrate the return from exile. So I think I might have mentioned this at some point since we've been here, but um, the Israelites, they believed that until Israel was restored as a nation, that Israel was still in a spiritual exile, even though physically they'd come back to the, the promised land um, out of captivity. So they believed they were still in an exile. So Ezekiel 20, verse 33 to 34 speaks of God's future deliverance, and he uses the phrase, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And that's the exact same phrase, word for word, that's used um, in the uh, Exodus from Egypt. And then Jeremiah 16, 14 through 15, it also speaks of a time coming when there would be future deliverance that would overshadow the first Exodus. It says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought the people out of Egypt, out of, yeah, out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought the people out of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. So 
This is talking about the return from captivity, but it's alluding to the fact um, that this had happened before in Exodus. So these prophets, they are always referring back to Exodus and coming out of Egypt. Then Isaiah does a similar thing when he compares the return from exile in Babylon to the first Exodus. In Isaiah 43, he says, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. So here it says um, that God makes a way in the sea. It talks about this destruction of chariots and horses. And that's a clear echo of the Exodus when God parted the Red Sea. They came through and then the sea came back down on the pursuing Egyptians. And then um, Isaiah expresses a similar, uh, similar, a thought similar to Jeremiah. Uh, Isaiah adds, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. So all through prophetic uh, writings in the Bible, there's this pervasive connection that um, the Exodus uh, and the coming Messiah were, were similar. There was connections between the two uh, made all the way through Scripture. In Exodus, God's people were led out of physical slavery. Through Jesus, they were freed from spiritual slavery, which is sin. The crucifixion of Jesus took place during the Jewish Passover, uh, during that weekend, and this held significant meaning to the New Testament writers. They made a distinct connection between the death of Jesus and the sacrificial system, um, and the sacrificial lamb and the Passover meal. Uh, they made a connection between these. So the Synoptic Gospels present the Last Supper as a Passover meal, and that, that was um, really important because it added a lot of emphasis to his words when he was having this meal. This is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Um, now, something I learned during this study that blew my mind completely, and this, this does happen quite often, um, the King James Version translates this passage as, this is my body broken for you. And that is what we say in church. I have said it, uh, I don't know how many times, like a million times. But I discovered during my study that that in the King James is actually a textual variant, which is a fancy name for when a translation or manuscript deviates from the original text. Uh, so all the earliest manuscripts in Luke translate this specifically as, this is my body given for you. And it's such a little thing. It, you know, doesn't, what, how does that matter? Um, why does that make a difference? While Jesus was brutally beaten and tortured, this prophecy states that not a bone would be broken. And we know this to be true from Scripture because the soldiers broke the legs of the two criminals, but not his legs. They also did not break any bones when they stabbed him with a spear, so John gives this eyewitness testimony and says, this is to fulfill the prophecy that says, not a bone of him will be broken. And so, as we're studying this, it becomes more clear why this is so important that not a bone was broken. Um, it becomes clear when reading this gospel, and when looking back at the Old Testament, and the, the regulations that are being referred to here, that John is saying that Jesus is the Passover lamb. 
Not a Passover lamb, but the Passover lamb, the lamb of God, the final Passover lamb. And so we kind of have to put our heads into this culture to understand the significance of that, because they did this every year. John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And this interpretation and understanding is clearly accepted by the apostles as you go forward to the New Testament letters. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, also has been sacrificed. And then Peter, in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 to 19, he says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, ouch, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So let's reflect for a minute on these connections uh, between Jesus and the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb had to be perfect. Exodus 12, 5, the lamb shall be without blemish. And we know that Jesus was perfect. Hebrews 4, 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. The Israelites were slaves to Pharaoh, and Jesus says we're slaves to all sin. John 8.34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The tenth plague in Exodus was death. Exodus 12.29 says, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Then Paul writes that our sin leads to death. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The Israelites who put the blood of the Passover lambs on their door were spared that death. Exodus 12.13, When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then the blood of Jesus the Passover lamb, spares us from death. Ephesians 1.7, In him we have, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the richness of his grace. Okay, so, a lot of stuff there. Uh, let's move to kind of applying this. We've studied this. Um, there's so much in here to, to process. Um, but what should you remember? What should you take away from this prophecy? That not a bone of Jesus would be broken. So first, obviously, this prophecy firmly connects Jesus to the Passover lamb in Exodus. Um, if, if you didn't get that from what I said, I should probably just leave, because I'm really bad at explaining things. Um, that one's kind of a duh one. Uh, John says... For these things came to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him should be broken. By identifying that Jesus had not broken a bone, and identifying that that was to keep the Passover regulations regarding the lamb to be sacrificed, John is identifying Jesus as the Passover lamb. When John saw Jesus approaching, he said, 
Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And that declaration made an immediate association. Before anyone even thought about killing Jesus, before anyone even knew really who he was, John already identified him as the Lamb sent by God to carry away the sin of the world. And then the apostles identified Jesus as the Passover Lamb in the New Testament. We saw Paul saying, for Christ our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. And then Peter saying, you've been redeemed not through silver and gold, but through the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect. And these firmly established Jesus as the Passover lamb in Scripture. So that's the first thing I want everyone to remember. The second thing, this connection between Jesus and the Passover lamb establishes Jesus' death as the ultimate sacrifice for the propitiation of our sins. Uh, and that's just a fancy word that means reparation for sin or atonement. Uh, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. And I talked about that last week, how, you know, um, the, the heavy part of that verse is the second part, but the gift of God is um, eternal life through Jesus Christ. But that first part is so important in understanding why this is so important. The wages of sin is death. Sin can only be paid for through death with blood. In Exodus, the Passover lamb atoned for the sins of the household, purifying those went in the house and sanctifying those who ate it. And by participating in that ritual, the people consecrated themselves as a nation holy to God. And by linking the crucifixion of Jesus to the offering of this lamb, the New Testament writers highlight the redemptive nature of his death. Like the original Passover sacrifice, his death atones for the sin of the people. His blood purifies and cleanses us. And his, blood sanctif or his body sanctifies those who partake in his kingdom. Because this sacrifice was made by God himself in the form of his sinless son, it is the ultimate sacrifice. You know, the, the whole sacrificial system with lambs, like you're, you're sacrificing an animal to pay for your sins. But this is God himself dying for your sins. It is the ultimate sacrifice, the final sacrifice. And the third and final thing I want you to take away uh, is something I haven't talked about yet in this sermon. Um, this prophecy also connects Jesus to the lamb who's been slain in Revelation. So in the book of Revelation, the lamb appears as a representation of Jesus over 28 times. And whenever he appears, he appears as a lamb that has been slain or sacrificed. He is worshipped as being worthy to open the scrolls that no one else can open. This is Revelation 5, verses 6 to 10. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue, and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. 
And this is a beautiful depiction of Jesus being worshipped for humbling himself and dying on the cross as the Passover lamb to atone and to pay for the sins of the world, purchasing us with his own blood. So in conclusion, I, I hope that this prophecy has helped to deepen and expand the significance and the meaning of Jesus' sacrifice because it's such a huge deal. And while it's such a huge deal, um, and we've always understood that, you can always learn more, and there's so much more to know and grow in and to see. Um, and the more deep you go, the crazier it gets just how amazing this sacrifice is. You know, so often we use names and phrases in church, but we don't always know and understand their true depth and their true significance because it wasn't our culture. And so, you know, we, we call Jesus the Lamb of God in songs, and this hopefully has kind of given it that depth and understanding what that really means, that Jesus was the Lamb of God. And the significance for the Israelites was incredible. God incarnate as the Passover Lamb come to atone for our sins, purifying and sanctifying all who accept him. And it's my hope that as we head into this new week, uh, and as we continue to study through these prophecies and to come closer to the Easter season, that this prophecy of Jesus uh, as the Passover lamb will help to deepen and close your relationship with Jesus. I'll close in prayer. God, I thank you for your sacrifice. I thank you that you chose to come and die in our place as the Passover lamb. I thank you for what your sacrifice does for us, and I just ask that you would work in our hearts and help us to learn and grow in our relationship with you continually. Um, and I just ask that you'd be with us as we go into this week uh, and keep us safe and help us to be an example of your love to the world. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.